0: The world is evolving at a faster pace than ever before. As we begin the path to recovery after worldwide disruption, this podcast explores how the design industry can adapt to changing expectations and create a better future for your businesses and consumers. I'm your host, Peter Marion, and you're listening to Create Tomorrow, the WGSN Podcast. emerging as a key trend before the pandemic, featuring in the Future Consumer 2022 forecast, the retail forecast and the shopper forecast as well. It's a shift that has only accelerated through the pandemic period, as lockdowns meant that we got to know our neighbours and shop from local stores as we weren't as able to travel. This investment in the fabric of local communities and ongoing restrictions on movement, alongside concerns around spending time in crowded spaces like city centres, means that the localism trend is set to continue to accelerate. As we move back towards some next version of normal, one of the things that has emerged through the crisis period is a greater emotional investment in supporting the communities around us. And as we move out of this period and face into the next recessionary period, people will be looking to ensure that how they live and spend supports the people that they know. Today, I'm really lucky to be joined by a very global roster of guests as we explore how the localism trend is emerging in different ways around the world and also how different markets are at different stages of recovery from the lockdown. We're recording this episode in the middle of July. I'm in London. Restaurants and non-essential retail have opened up and while I've had a haircut, there are varying levels of enthusiasm towards resuming our older habits. Today, I'm joined by Athena Chen, our senior strategist for WGSN Insight in Shanghai. Hello, Athena. Hello, Peter, how are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you and what time is it there? Um,
1: I'm doing good. So I'm currently based in Shanghai and it's 7 p.m. here. Not too bad.
0: And it's a rainy day. <laughs> well, I'm sorry that it's raining now, but thank you so much for being here. Um, dialing in from Sao Paulo, we have Luis Aruda, head of our Mindset Consultancy business in Latin America. Hey, Luis.
2: Hi, Peter. Uh, great to be here. Uh, it's 8 a.m. in Brazil, uh, but I'm a morning person, so that's OK. Super excited to be here. Thank you
0: so much for coming. I'm really excited to have you here. And lastly, but absolutely not least, we have Helen Sack, our consulting director for APAC in our mindset business, who's based in my hometown of Melbourne, Australia.
3: Hi, Helen. How are you? And what time is it there? Hey, Peter. Reporting in from down under in the middle of winter, it is uh, just past 9 p.m.,
0: Thank you so much. I think that you are the winner or the loser in the uh, longest day stakes here. So thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> to begin, um, I think it's really important that we discuss the differences in where each country is in your pandemic and lockdown recovery journeys. Um, Athena, since you seem to be at the most positive end of all of this at the moment, why don't you tell us a little bit about what life looks like in Shanghai at the moment?
1: Yeah. yeah so. Um, China came out of lockdown around end of March, early April. So we're looking at, you know, coming out of lockdown for a couple of months now. And it's it's quite nice to be able to, you know, find our way back to a sense of normalcy. And it's quite surprising how fast people kind of like bounce back to normal lives again, because I think people on the ground are really... They're confident in in the Chinese government, you know, containing the virus. And they're also really wanting to put this episode behind them. So you really feel that sense of looking forward to a positive and more brighter future. And, you know, I think it's on the ground. We're feeling pretty happy and normal at the moment.
0: But has life fully returned to normal? Are people doing everything as they were before, like going to restaurants, shopping and things like that?
1: I think the general mood is positive
0: but I do think
1: people are still kind of wary there's still this kind of like lingering kind of psychological fear so we do see people not going to restaurants and um, physical stores as much as they would used to so like personally when I've been out I do like restaurants that used to be totally packed or had long queues are not experiencing that anymore. And we do see this shift of people, you know, wanting to stay home more and kind of like getting adjusted to that homebody kind of lifestyle. And definitely, even though restrictions have relaxed, we see um, all of the store staff and restaurant staff still wearing face masks. So definitely, we still need that
0: there to kind of facilitate a sense of security and safety. And, uh, Luis, how are things looking like in Brazil and Sao Paulo for you at the moment?
2: Oh, well, (laughs) yeah, we're probably on the other, like, uh, end of everything that has been going. As you probably know, uh, Brazil is now the center of the pandemic. And as you guys probably seen in the news, we are having, like, a really hard time facing COVID-19. So there's still a lot of cases going on. We didn't have a proper lockdown. I I am... uh, I guess it 's been one hundred and twenty days i've been locked in my house without leaving so yeah it's it 's hard so uh those of those of us who are privileged enough to remain in quarantine we are doing so uh, but we see that the economy is suffering a lot, you know suffering a lot from it the, there's a lot of and we weren 't necessarily we weren 't in the best shape before the pandemic before coronavirus, so I mean this has been a huge kind of uh, a huge deal for Brazil right now, and we will see. We'll probably see the, the evolution of this, and what what will happen uh, throughout twenty twenty for sure it will be like this for for the the rest of the year.
0: Okay, I'm really sorry to hear that. And in terms of. Um, how the government is supporting you. So there hasn't been an official lockdown, but if you can stay home, you are staying home. Is that correct?
2: Yes, yes. But there's not a, a national plan for this, you know. So there's not any coher- coherence in all the decisions that are being like, uh, that they're being going on. So yeah, it's 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 really hard. And each city has its own plan. So we are, we are a bit lost on this whole process.
0: Okay, okay.
3: And um, Helen, uh, what's it looking like for you? It was um, heading in a great direction. We were heading much um, closer to what Athena was describing. Things were um, starting to slowly be released from lockdown. Um, We started seeing small groups gathering again, people starting to... Not necessarily return to normal, as Athena was saying, but looking at, you know, seeing family again and being outside with five to ten people. And then as of last week, um, we went back into lockdown, back into stage three lockdown. There was a huge spike in cases. We have, you know, higher numbers than when the virus began in Melbourne, Um, but it's just in Melbourne. So uh, the rest of Australia is somewhat, um, I wouldn't say back to normal, but the the restrictions are released. People are, you know, out and doing things and, um, you know, still being cautious as well. But I think we we have a very relaxed attitude to it. I think people are potentially not taking it too seriously or as seriously as they should, and therefore um, the rest of us Melburnians are now suffering the consequences. So it's... Um, It feels more devastating than the first time, I would say. It's this sort of second wave of lockdown feels like, you know, we didn't learn our lesson the first time. So now this is punishment um, and round two. So interesting times down under.
0: So from a Melbourneian perspective and an Australian perspective, going back into lockdown, I mean, that must have been really tough. I mean, you were sort of talking about that being quite devastating. Are people taking it much more seriously
3: this time around? It's hard to say and it's hard to know. I think one thing lockdowns caused us to is really sort of become hermits. So In some ways, I feel less connected to a lot of my community that's around, because I don't physically see them. But in some ways, we're still connecting through, you know, WhatsApp, text, and different things like that. So it's hard to know whether or not people are taking it seriously, whether or not they're, you know, being good citizens and not going out. I know there are definitely a few people out and about and going to places where they shouldn't be. Um, But again, I think it comes back to this very relaxed attitude we have here and not taking it too seriously. But there's definitely a big push from the government. Um, Lots of big warning, saying we're going to go into a more stricter lockdown if we continue um, in this way.
0: In terms of um, sort of behaviours and things that you're seeing, how, how are we seeing the shift around um, around localism and the rise of the pandemic? How has that accelerated certain behavioural shifts? I mean, let's start with you, Athena. What's that looking like in Shanghai? So I think
1: during the pandemic, um, definitely... Uh especially coming from uh, Wuhan, which was um, the city that uh, the outbreak originated from, because there were like really severe lockdowns and basically all the businesses and everything was completely, it came completely to a standstill. And a lot of people suffered and that really kind of like casted in the light of how, you know, the Chinese people should come together and support their fellow citizens. So I think that was kind of like a starting point for people to really start to think about, you know, how we can support local communities and how we should come together to help each other, you know, throughout times of crisis. And I think as um, lockdowns have been lifted, uh, lifted, this has definitely continued to Come along. So I still think people are really thinking about, you know, what they're buying, where they're eating and how they should sort of like, and especially because people don't really want to venture out too far as well. So I think people are really thinking about how they should, you know, support restaurants that are close to them. I know, for example, like in Shanghai, there was this burger place called Grindr. So it's a small local shop and they suffered badly throughout the pandemic and they sent out messages on WeChat. and they sent out vouchers and messages to kind of like rally people to help them and they really gathered a group of um, people that uh, were close to the restaurant who went out and ordered for them and ordered takeaway and really helped them sort of get back on their feet so we're seeing stories like that happen here and there and it really is kind of like quite heartwarming to see people kind of come together and help each other out.
0: And Luis, what's that looking like in Sao Paulo at the moment? Is there sort of community aid groups or community support groups even beyond sort of spending? How are people looking after each other through the pandemic at the moment?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, the pandemic is unveiling like all of our social disparities so far, you know, which is important for the population to really understand, to really uh, absorb that because some of us, and they don't necessarily, we don't necessarily have the notion of, you know, the huge gaps that Brazil has. Um, and that, that has led, the, like that, that has led a, a big reflection, you know, like uh, on the majority of the population and people are actually is, is beginning to claim their rights. You know, so one, th- one thing that we have been discussing, I mean, for a while uh, locally, both locally and with the global team uh, in WSN is the idea of cultural decolonization, uh, which is something that is super powerful and that has been like going on for a while now in LATEM and especially in Brazil. And it's, I mean, it's all about reclaiming our heritage. So leaving that underdog feeling, if I may say that, you know, behind uh, that has, that has been haunting us like for a while, for centuries, you know, since we were colonized. And this is something that is really interesting. The, the whole idea, one, one, one key point here that I want to to highlight is that the whole idea that we were discovered is a proof of that. You know, I mean, we were not discovered. We were here before, we were here already, you know. So our, our story has always been told by someone else. And this is really interesting because this has been accelerated by COVID, you know, I mean, uh, that has empowered a lot of people, a lot of individuals, a lot of groups here, you know, and that has, uh, that, that that has been going on for a while. It gained a lot of space on the media, you know, and that has a lot of positive impacts, you know, like the the rise of valuing local initiatives, local businesses, uh, even our local aesthetics and local codes and things like this. It's finding our voice, which is, I guess this is a good outcome, you know, from COVID-19. So that was a big buzz here on the media revolving around this idea of supporting local businesses, uh, a lot of uh, new local initiatives going on, especially because we don't have a proper kind of plan from our government, you know, so actually we're finding our way. This is something that has, this is Brazil, right? I, we have always found, found a way, you know, to to, to basically to to remain positive optimistic and work things out you know so there's a lot of local aid groups helping those in need helping those who who are more vulnerable right now and it's really interesting because this is a part of a bigger movement of really being proud of being brazilian and not feeling like an underdog anymore
0: I mean, that's one of the things that I really recognize from when I was out there last year is that sort of real sense of resilience that comes from the Brazilian culture and that real sense of joy as well. Um, can you talk a little bit more about this idea of de- decolonization? Because I think that some of our our listeners might not necessarily understand what that means.
2: Sure. I mean, uh, the idea that we were colonized is, like, a to- like, a, like I said before, is... Part of our history, you know. So we have been discovered, uh, and I'm not really comfortable with that word, but we have been discovered by Portuguese uh, five centuries ago, uh, and uh, that has led us to 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 feel and to think that uh, everything that come that come from like that came from the u.s or europe is better than what we have right That than what we have right here especially from a cultural perspective you know so we have been looking up uh, to the you know to the u.s for a while you know so and always thinking that we are not quite there you know in terms of quality of our culture and things that we we we, we, we don't necessarily we, we, we don't necessarily value what we have here. So it's really interesting to see uh, that shifting, you know, really it, it, the culture of decolonization is b- basically just valuing what we have right here. And this is really interesting because we can see it in fashion, we can see it in music, we can see it in arts. You know, it's really interesting to see, I mean, the emergency or the the reach that local artists are gaining right now. You know, it's uh, one cool example is that if you look like at the top hits that we have from a, from a music perspective, like a decade ago this will all be like basically american artists or european artists and now this is all about brazil and this is super powerful this is something that is really interesting and really important for our clients to understand and absorb that any and kind of uh, use that in favor of their product and marketing strategies as well
0: and in terms of like currently from a local perspective, like what sort of um, sort of support networks are emerging? Are there any sort of concrete examples of some of the things that you've seen, even from your local neighbourhood?
2: Yeah, sure. A lot. You know, there's a lot on supporting local businesses. A lot of uh, helping those like like risk groups. You know, so there's smaller initiatives. You know, they're gaining traction, and uh, obviously we do have some people with some influencers that are actually uh, bringing that to the spotlight, if I may say that. So we do have Puerto Nossa Conta, for instance, which is a local initiative. Uh, We do have a lot of uh, uh, smaller, really smaller initiatives that are now gaining a bit of traction and gaining more reach. Uh, And again, it's all about helping people at risk and uh, helping local businesses, basically.
0: And what does it look like in
3: Australia, Helen? I think it's pretty... um closely reflected to what Louise was talking about, actually. We have things on a really macro, big level and also things on a really small community level. For example, um, a lot of our local coffee shops who are, you know, known globally for the excellent coffee that they do are really shifting their... um, priorities back into their communities. So looking at, you know, not only giving away free coffee um, as a small token, but, you know, having things available like sourdough, eggs, bread, and being able to pick up your local basics without having to go into the supermarket to fight the hordes. So small local initiatives where, you know, um, the community is being supported, we're seeing a lot of those. And I think Melbourne's always been quite a community driven place. Um, I don't know how many people know this about Melbourne, but there are little pockets of communities who, you know, through friendships, through relationships, through um, local community centres, through Facebook groups, they get together, they do stuff. Um, They might knit or they might, um, you know, do something together or just chat online or whatever it is. Um, But we do have a sense of this community creation. So there's always things I see online, like um, there's a guy down the street not far from where I live who has access to a fruit and veg shop. So at the end of every week, anything that doesn't get sold, he puts out on his porch, people can come up and collect that because they don't have access or they don't have funds because people are losing their jobs. So there's definitely a sense of community spirit already, but it's only been amplified by um, what we're seeing with the, the crisis we're facing at the moment.
0: And I think that that um, business pivots that we're seeing as well, um, that thing that you talked about with the coffee shops moving towards becoming more general stores, and some of them are even sort of delivering food. Uh, I've seen in Melbourne because I got some, I only know this because I got food delivered to my parents, is that some of those <laughs> restaurants and cafes are now sort of sending breakfast box home via um, delivery processes. And so you can then order, you know, your bacon and eggs or your coffee and whatever, and that then gets delivered so you can make it at home, which has been really lovely as well. Um, What sort of things are you guys seeing at the moment? I mean, Helen, why don't we start with you on this? Uh, Because obviously the Australian made narrative has always been a huge one for us. Um, So let's talk about what's happening there.
3: Yeah, so I think one thing that the virus has brought us is this sort of understanding that we need to support local. So the government has put a big push um, into buying Australian made. We've revamped the logo. Um, there's this little cute uh, green kangaroo little logo that gets stamped on things where you know that it's born and bred um, in Australia. So the we're, we're seeing a lot more consumers seeking out Australian made products, seeking out things that are fully owned and operated from Australia, not imported from other places. And it's becoming more and more important for customers. I think what Lewis was saying earlier about how we always looked outside. We always wanted to be like the US or the UK or Europe, and we always um, were searching for things that were not Australian because we thought something else was better. We're starting to recognise that actually home um, homegrown is better. Our quality is great. Um, we, we have the opportunity to reinvigorate our manufacturing and our supply chains, and so people are starting to understand that, you know, that reliance on the outside world may not be the future for us down under.
0: I think that's a really fantastic. I mean, obviously, I miss Melbourne coffee, like you would not believe. Um, but uh, that's a really interesting perspective on that, because this idea that we always rely on international culture to, to inform our own and, and not really value what, what comes from us. I think that's something that is really fascinating that obviously has come from Luis and, and interesting to hear, hear it from you, Helen, as well. In terms of uh, government initiatives, what are you seeing, Athena?
1: Yeah, so I think in China, it's a little bit more complicated because obviously a lot of brands, international brands produce in China as well. And I think it's it's a bit different but I think there's we've seen the shift of um, the Chinese government really wanting to support like smaller and medium-sized enterprises because they're really kind of like the backbone of the China economy because apart from like the larger first-tier cities such as Shanghai or Beijing definitely a lot of the lower-tier cities and rural areas rely a lot on these smaller and medium-sized businesses so in China we're definitely seeing the government really stepping up and trying to support them and we're seeing the large e-commerce platforms like Alibaba and com, you know looking to help these um, smaller businesses digitize their operations you know it's, uh, lowering platform fees and also supporting them in different ways of teaching them how to do digital marketing and advertise online and we're also seeing this boost um, from rural farmers because um, we're seeing a lot of influencers um, helping out and promoting um, locally grown produce because in china's in China, there's also this kind of sentiment of still looking to like imported goods or imported foods as being more premium and quality. But whereas you know China is a big agricultural country, and they're really also trying to give rural farmers a big boost because a lot of um, their produce has been delayed in season because of the movement restrictions. A lot of the vegetables and fresh stuff that they're producing is being you know rot is now rotting away in warehouses, and they're really helping trying to help them boost their business through uh, connecting them with online platforms and giving them like, you know, a digital uh, way to operate. So that's what we're seeing here in China.
0: And then, I mean, there's also been some other sort of initiatives around governments um, giving people vouchers, right? Is that true, Athena? Yes, so this kind of
1: varies um, from uh, different regions and different local governments but definitely a lot of local governments are stepping up and giving out vouchers and they're trying to do it digitally as well because in China mobile payments is quite prevalent and people have WeChat Pay or Alipay and a lot of local governments are working with both the e-commerce platforms and uh, offline stores and giving out digital vouchers and sort of encouraging people to go
2: out and shop more.
0: Luis, uh, what are you seeing in Brazil from that perspective as well, if anything at all?
2: Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, uh, the last decade has been a bumpy decade for us. You know, like resilience needs to be kind of our middle name here because, uh, from a politics standpoint specifically, we are not. Uh, we are we are struggling, you know. But from the past de- decade, we had a, a president that was impeached. We had a lot of corruption uh, uh, cases. Right now, still in the in this 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 government that we have, uh, this current government that we have right now, uh, we don't have. Like I told you before, we don't have necessarily like a global a global a national strategy. You know, we don't have a national plan. Uh, like I told you as well, we didn't have a proper lockdown, uh, and that's basically why we're facing what we're facing right now, while we're in the situation that we, we currently are. There are some smaller initiatives like... Um uh, local initiatives there is, there is an initiative uh, from the government that is called auxilio Emergencial em- emergency aid uh, like the back translation of it will be like this uh, but there's still a lot of problems on giving that to the population so that's still not necessarily working uh, smoothly basically um, so yeah I mean uh, what what we what we feel that the, the the overall feeling that we have here is that we need to find our own way in like individually or collectively or in communities, you know, to to tackle this because we won't have a, like, a broader, a bigger and more structured plan for us here in Brazil.
0: As we move into sort of a more digital sphere, I'm going to sort of think about how we look at localism from that perspective. Because obviously, you know, what we've seen through the pandemic globally, or in most markets anyway, is that the um, there's been a huge spike in online ordering and online retail. And I was just wondering is how do we just tie this idea of localism together with this idea of um, internet shopping? Is there any sort of shifts that we're seeing? And one of the things I sort of think about when I think about this is this idea of the rise of apps like Depop, where you start to get to know the other person that you're purchasing from. So this idea of locally supporting a person that you kind of sort of know um, via the internet. Are we seeing other shifts like that globally? Um, Are you seeing anything in China, Athena? Well, in China, I think,
1: there is one thing that Louise mentioned earlier. It's kind of like how influencers are coming out and sort of like rallying up communities around them as well and sort of like advocating for uh, local businesses and on the other hand, in China, because WeChat is such you know a a strong network in china and Throughout the pandemic, as people were, you know, getting information and communicating with their friends and family through WeChat, we're now seeing this rise of like community-based marketing on WeChat. So people are now increasingly kind of like discovering brands and products through their peer-to-peer community on WeChat. And we're really seeing brands kind of like leveraging that as well and creating their own WeChat groups and trying to reach people in a more kind of in-person and intimate kind of way, and really not just selling products, but really engaging and kind of communicating the benefits and, you know, creating a good rapport uh, between them and the wider community as well.
0: And what are we seeing in Australia on this,
3: Helen? Um, I think in terms of sort of shopping and online, there's definitely an uptick in the the amount that people are shopping online for sure. And I think what it's actually helping us in Australia with is the um, infrastructure. So I think it's pretty well known that our e-commerce could be a lot better. It doesn't really compare to that of the UK or the US. Or you know, returns take a long time. Things don't come the next day. Um, and what we are seeing is that a lot of this infrastructure, by necessity, is being upgraded. Um, people are learning that, you know, this is the way into, you know, the way we will shop in the future. So if we can't get it right now during a pandemic when people need it the most, when are we going to get it right? So it's probably not the best time to be user testing and um, figuring out systems. But it's definitely helping um, us here to accelerate and improve a lot of the systems and the the companies that we're seeing winning are those who invested in digital pre-pandemic um, and those are the companies that are really succeeding um, and they were they were ready for the pandemic before we sort of landed in it so it's been really interesting and I think it should only improve our systems moving forward. Indeed.
0: I mean, you were the one of all of us that had the hardest time getting the gear for the podcast, which I thought was really interesting.
3: That's right. Um, I've I've tried not to buy anything lately. I think this pandemic has kind of got me in a mode of, you know, I don't need anything new. I don't need to consume. But the few things that I have needed to order, like my dog food, um, some gear for this podcast, they were definitely delayed. Things that I expected to come on a Monday didn't come until two Mondays after. And so that really just goes to show um with the increased need and demand, we just don't have it sorted out here.
0: For sure. That's, yeah, that's, that's incredible. Um, and then, Luis, what about Brazil? What's that looking like in terms of online and communities and things like that?
2: Yes, uh, I mean I, I still haven't got my my proper gear. I'm still waiting for this. Actually, uh, it's been a week now. But um, again, like I told you guys, I'm resilient. I'm sorry if my sound doesn't isn't isn't as perfect as yours. But it, probably I will receive that by next Monday. So it's use, it's useless. But well, I, I will receive it. Uh,
0: we'll so- get you back on. Don't worry, Luis. <laughs> it's fine. It'll be it'll become useful another day.
2: Ah, uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, but we, we it's really interesting because we. We are uh like uh like helen was was telling before i mean the, the the companies that we see winning right now were the ones that invested in the the you know like this digital economy before you know we we do we we are seeing a, a huge spike you know on like uh the, the download of apps especially like delivery apps here in brazil and this is something that our our society wasn't our consumers weren't necessarily. Um, ready for, you know, that we weren't heavy users, you know, from a broader perspective of this platform, the, those platforms or those services. And it's really interesting to see that. And, and uh, from a consumer standpoint, but it's always interesting to see uh, the evolution that some companies needed to, to 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 have, like, at a really fast pace in order to, to catch up with everything that is going on. So it's really interesting to see. Uh, as, as you guys know, uh, Brazil is a really social country, right? I mean, there's a lot of, uh, we value a lot social media and we, and we tend to use it a lot. Uh, I tend to see the internet as a hero and a, in a villain, you know, at some times, you know, because uh, it, uh, it does uh, democratize, democratize the access to information, but we don't, it also, uh, it also, it, it's interesting to see in, in our internet behavior that it also increases the gaps that we have. You know, not everyone has access to internet. Uh, so it also, it, it also, it's important for us to understand that as well. Uh, but we are seeing a population that is really like, uh, deep diving into this new digital economy, really using it for work, really using it for education, and obviously for consumption as well. Uh, and it's really like a wake up call for brazilian companies you know especially for some segments for some industries such as fashion for example you know for them to really use that in their favor because the the now the consumers are there so it's really important to get everything in place to work your digital to 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 build your to build properly your digital strategies and this is i see this with like optimistic eyes you know i, I think there will be an interesting time for for the internet here in brazil especially for businesses
0: and in terms of um, sort of this consumer shift, as we sort of look to this future where consumers are really looking to support the people, the businesses, the locations that they know, and obviously a lot of our clients are quite large businesses. A lot of them might be international businesses as well. And so what should they be doing to participate in this shift and how, the, how should they be helping their consumers on a community basis? Um, why don't we kick off with you, Athena, in Shanghai?
1: Yeah, so I think in... In Shanghai, obviously, a lot of big brands operating here, but I think a really nice kind of shift that I've seen happening is these global brands really looking to collaborate more with local creative communities, whether they're designers, artists, and They're really considering, you know, their role in, you know, facilitating these kind of uh, relationships and facilitating creativity. And a really good example is there is a independent platform called Common Rare in Shanghai, and they specialize in promoting local and independent designer brands. And they've been working with some of the largest uh, shopping malls in Shanghai and putting up creative um, weekend markets and really putting up uh, pop-up stores that go by the slogan of you know shop local and looking at the little things that matter so I think people are really you know focusing more inwards on you know the small things that are happening around them and you know casting a new light on these little moments and small things that are happening around them and really finding you know value and joy in them.
0: Helen what are you seeing in Australia? Or what should businesses be doing in Australia?
3: I think it's, you know, going back and fo- focusing on the human side of things. It's, you know, going back to smaller community levels. I think we're no longer looking at um, affecting things on a global scale or even a national scale. So we're seeing tiny little pockets of campaigns that are happening in local communities, in suburbs, and things that are actually directly reaching out to individuals and humans and not necessarily, you know, the whole population of Australia. So um, we're talking about connecting deeply with, you know, a handful of customers rather than trying to connect with, you know, what we used to want to do with one size fits all kind of campaign um, reach. Um, we're not really seeing anymore. So I think um, between the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter campaigns and all the different things that are happening in the world, one thing that's really shining is how important it is to be human, to speak on a human level, to connect on a human level. And I think that's really driving um all the successful marketing campaigns, but also driving a lot of, you know, businesses that are not necessarily looking out for themselves, but looking out for each other.
0: Absolutely. And I think that 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 looking out for each other thing and and that sort of shift and looking out for the consumer is is only going to be something that will continue to grow in terms of levels of importance. Um, moving forward, particularly as we move into the next phase. I really hope so. Well, yeah, I mean, especially because we're moving into the, like what's going to be quite a difficult economic period. And if we start to think about like a recessionary mindset, if you're not showing up for your consumer, then you're going to be really, really stuck, right?
3: Yeah. And I think it's, it's harder to get away with things now. I think there are much more um, whistleblowers and people who want to call you out when you're not doing the right thing. So there's definitely nowhere to hide anymore.
0: And I think also there's like less fear because there's a lot less to lose from a lot of people because they're not so worried about because, you know, We've gone through this sort of incredibly traumatic period and everything's been really difficult. And so, you know, where people might not have wanted to offend future employers or past employers and, and prevent uh, future job roles, you know, they're now speaking out and they're like, well, my company, this company that I work for was doing the wrong thing or whatever. They're just not afraid anymore. And some of the stuff that we're seeing is really explosive and really eye opening and, and really, you know, disappointing as
3: well. Um, And it's really great to see some of the vulnerability, um, which we've not really seen before. You know, people and brands and communities really allowing the world to see places where, you know, they used to keep so so tucked away and, and hidden.
2: Yeah, and uh, it's really interesting to see. I totally agree with Athena and uh, Helen. Uh, from a Brazilian uh, perspective, uh, two key words here are uh, empathy and vul- vul- vulnerability, uh, which Helen just, just told us. It's it's really key for us. And this is something, again, kind of new, right, for, for companies. It's weird to say that, but it is. You know, they're not really uh, – history tells us that usually, like, brands were not that empathetic as they as – as empathetic as they could be, or they weren't necessarily vulnerable. And from from our situation here that we need to be resilient, you know, that that, that we're facing some hard times here, uh, it's really important to for companies really to embrace those two words and to really mean it. You know, we, we have been talking about purpose for a while now. So re- it's really important to incorporate and to understand uh, the important shifts that brands need to, you know, to go through in this period that for for. for For Brazil, for instance, this is really key.
0: I think, Luis, you've just made me think of something very, very beautiful, which is the idea of um, resilience through vulnerability and so that you can't be resilient unless you are a little bit vulnerable as well. And I think that that is probably a key business learning um, for companies moving into the next phase of whatever comes next, uh, obviously, which is very varied based on where you are around the world. Um, To move into our last question uh, for the episode, I was wanting to ask each of you, what is one short-term and one long-term thing that our clients... Clients should be doing to help support people in local communities and this localism shift. Uh, let's start with you, Louise.
2: Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, from a long term point of view, it's uh, my basically my main bet for for our clients is to embrace the new digital economy for good. You know, which is not something that which has not necessarily been like a priority for some segments, for some industries and for some businesses here in Brazil. So it's really important uh, to get your uh, digital ecosystem and strategy on point. This is key and this needs to be done right now. And uh, from a long-term perspective, it's basically to build a, to build our speech and strategy around the idea of cultural decolonization, you know, which we have been discussing throughout the the, the episode, you know, from a product and from a marketing perspective. And and, and one thing that is really interesting to point out here uh, is that there's a twist to it because Brazil is a huge country. We're almost like a continent, you know, Uh, like India, for instance. And we do have a lot of regional nuances, a lot of regional specificities and and they need to be addressed. Uh, When it comes to like uh, a decolonized approach to to our culture and obviously uh, the impact that it has on on marketing uh, efforts and on product uh, uh, efforts as well uh, it's really important that we understand that we are not just one big block it's really important to really understand uh, how different regions uh, like how consumers from different different regions behave, and it's really key to address that as well. Uh, we are beginning to see this, we are reclaiming, you know, our heritage on a m- micro level as well, so it's really important to address that.
0: And Helen, what would you say are the one long-term and one short-term thing that the businesses should be doing at the moment to support local communities?
3: I think definitely a big long-term thing to think about is, you know, how can we embrace local and make it something that isn't just happening now and it's something that we have forever. I think looking at, you know, all of the great things we have around us, and, you know, this isn't just true of Australia. I see this in Hong Kong, we see this in China, we see this all over the world where countries are starting to embrace what they have in their own backyards and looking less to other countries and looking less to um other nations for better products and looking at, you know, how we can improve and evolve and grow and, you know, look at all the the great things that we have in our own backyards that we can develop and, in turn, develop our own countries and our own economies. Um, in terms of short term, I think it's going to be about embracing change. I think particularly since moving back to Australia nearly a year ago, one thing that I've found time and time again, is that we're we're faced with consumers who are not really willing to make changes. We're so used to doing things in a certain way that we're a little bit scared of trying things in a new way. Um, And I I can see how, you know, much this holds us back. in so many different ways so I think this idea of embracing change don't be afraid to do something different break something try it again um, test it out with your customers it's the only way we're going to move forward and the only way we're going to learn so to I guess you know embrace the changes don't be too afraid of you know doing something slightly different
0: and now's the perfect time to be doing it because everything is so much up in the air I think
3: Um... (laughs) that's right and often you don't have much of a choice
0: (laughs) Athena, what is uh, your one one short-term and one long-term thing that businesses should be uh, doing to take care of communities? I think, yeah, when when you're looking at the China
1: market, I think previously, you know, people would just think, oh, it's a really big market that's driving a lot of growth. And I think now, uh, after the pandemic, people are becoming more aware. So people on the ground, Chinese consumers, they're becoming more considered. And I think brands really need to kind of like, you know, reassess um, their the role that they're playing in the lives of you know the Chinese people and the communities and Because a lot of brands are also producing in China What that means for brand and production strategies and how, how that might help local suppliers and help support local communities as well and I think on the short term brands should find creative ways to really celebrate local culture and 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 i think it's coming on that you know showing empathy and really you know going out onto the streets and engaging with consumers and really showing a more human side of things so i think chinese consumers are really looking for the more human side of brands to be shown and let them know
0: that you know they're with them together through this And that's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening to the WGSN podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, then please subscribe to us. You can find us on all major podcast platforms. And if you really like what you heard, then please leave us a rating and review. It really does help us get the word out there. In our next episode, Carla Busashi will be joined by Lisa White to talk about the future of the home. But in the interim, if you want to learn more about what we've been talking about today, then head over to WGSN.com to find out how you can get access to much more insight and analysis. And if you're already a subscriber, head over to the site where we've pulled together all of our research on the rise of localism with key points from this podcast in one handy report. Thanks to our guests for being here and for staying up late. And I'd like to thank our show producer, Roland Brodenham. And again, thank you for being here. Please stay well and healthy and we'll see you next time. Bye. (music)